0: Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Liebman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. <laughs> This is Think Out Loud on OPB, I'm Dave Miller. The writer Jonathan Lethem became a literary star for his novels Motherless Brooklyn and The Fortress of Solitude, books that unearthed and re-examined the Brooklyn neighborhood of his childhood. Lethem moved on, figuratively and literally. He lives in California now and has written books that take place all over. But his latest is a return to his roots and a chance to dig even deeper. It's called Brooklyn Crime Novel. We talked about it in front of an audience at the Newmark Theater during the 2023 Portland Book Festival. I thought we could start with the, the, whole, the whole book is about where you grew up, uh, yeah. which is at a certain point it became known as Borham Hill. It wasn't called that too much before you, you arrived. What did it, look like what did it sound like or smell like in the in the 1970s (laughs) well yeah
1: that's everything i wanted to somehow reconstruct in the book was this um this aura you know you live long enough and the past becomes really really past and you start to realize that you have sort of information in your body that no one else can even imagine and that um it's enough. It's it's you know I like to write things that are that are um, really journeys for people, but that if you could just nail down you know these kinds of things that you're mentioning the scents the sounds of, of a single block of the city in you know 1977 that it's like taking people to Mars. It's it's like a, really a, a journey to another universe. I, I had a weird. Of course, advantage in one sense in that I had tried before. I had a book called The Fortress of Solitude 20 years earlier. And in some ways, that book was more into the lyrical, um, descriptive, sensory atmospherics. And, you know, I'd already evoked the place for myself as a kind of reconstruction, but I'd done it in a very romantic way. And this time I wanted to do it in a much less romantic way. I wanted it to feel kind of like a tabloid actuality, like you'd been jolted back into a set of um, experiences
0: and frameworks that were, you know, radically, now radically distant from our own. In your acknowledgments at the end, you have, it's mainly just a a long list of names. Mm -hmm. And, And you say that in writing this book, you relied on help to an unusual degree. Yeah. Um, you call the people who then follow carers, thinkers, <laughs> and rememberers. What did you ask those people? Well, it was very specific at a certain point.
1: I developed a questionnaire, actually, which I would send out. I was, um, you know, so I began as a writer. I began uh, not as a writer, I was a painter. My, my father's a painter, and I thought I was gonna make visual art. and. So I grew up with this idea about expressivity, that you, you, know, you made things gesturally out of your imagination, out of your own impulses, out of your own memories, maybe. But you didn't rely on other people. You certainly didn't do research. And um, the image was that of like an action painter. You, know, you, make so, you make a magnificent expressive movement of some kind, and then you bring it out into the world, and you're like, look at me. I did something cool. Uh, and this was my model for writing when I began. I thought of it as uh, purely personal, imaginative, gestural kind of work. And I wasn't a good student. I didn't learn how to write nonfiction or a thesis or do research or, you know, I never wrote a dissertation on anything. So I didn't have any methodology like that. And for a long time, I wrote novels the way a painter paints. But when I wrote The Fortress of Solitude, it was the beginning of accruing some of the skills of a researcher, the things that a nonfiction writer takes for granted, talk to other people, ask for help, look in an archive. And that was because I wanted to get some of the the setting and the historical context for where I'd grown up uh, right, right enough that no one would quibble with it anyway. But I still, and I had a few old friends, I had, uh, my brother and my best friend, Carl, and my, my neighbor, Lynn Nottage, who's a very famous playwright now. And I would reminisce with them a little bit, and th- and they're in that book. But it was still a very tight cluster of people who were more or less in a kind of intimate conversation with me, but this time I wanted to be like a social scientist and I went to the broadest possible array of sources and archives and also I began looking up people I'd grown up with and fo- relocating like kids I was in school with and hadn't seen for 40 years and I, 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 went, it, I went into these like deep, deep rabbit hole, reconstructive kind of. Memory conversations, but I used a a
0: questionnaire to do it what were in the end the most helpful questions on the questionnaire That's a really good question. So well there were
1: two that Had a there was a total consensus on and I think those became galvanizing because of the the way they um, Shored up my intuitions about this project the two that everyone agreed about what, you know, uh, one was, uh, what was the first thing you ever stole? And everyone had something. Everyone was a thief.
0: Shoplifting. Shoplifting, absolutely. It was totally universal and. What, what was, uh, so, <laughs> you, uh, you asked that for a reason, and, you, and it oh, also, yeah. it, the, the way you asked it, the, um, it acknowledged the universality of this. You didn't say, did you shoplift? You said, what was the uh, first what thing? What was the first because thing? Because you knew. Yeah, well, yeah. Um,
1: so, what was yours? What was mine? Uh, I think it was a comic book. I'm sure it was a comic book. Uh, Do you, and, you remember how you did it? Yeah, sure, my sleeve. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Obviously. Yeah.
1: Um, they curl. It's a, it's a terrible vulnerability in the comic book. They curl very naturally into your sleeve. Uh, you just need a winter coat. But um, no, OK, so this was really important insight for me, because my vision was of a world, my intuition was that we'd grown up in a totally criminal context. And I, by that, I don't mean, you know, famous crimes, although there, there were those, but that everybody on the street in Brooklyn in the 70s had to form a relation to the idea of crime. Like, until you understood what, in what sense it was a part of your world, you know, whether you were principally a victim or principally a perpetrator, probably you were some kind of both, but that you had to have an attitude about it and you had to have a, a version of it that you could wear around. That that you know, you weren't you weren't eligible to be to be part of the community. And the but the other question that everyone consented to, uh, or everyone gave me the same answer to, one of my questions, I think the wording was, um did you ever talk to your
0: parents about any of this? And the answer was, are you kidding? And just to be clear, it wasn't, did you talk about, to your parents about you shoplifting? It, it, it was, no. Yeah, it was, it was, was about, did you talk to your parents about everything that was going on what and our the, lives the on the Street yeah. consisted of? It was, it do, was do did you, think, you consult, do, do you know, think that yeah. that was, if not unique to your circumstance, that, that it was somehow uh, significant? Be- or i mean yeah. do you think it's different than the the not unusual <laughs> wall between you know generations kids and yeah. parents well this is a question that bedevils
1: my life and this book is how much of what i'm writing about in that in brooklyn crime novel was absolutely unique not only to the the, the time and the place but even to the neighborhood and to the street because there are act- aspects of dean street and the life we lived there, the, the kind of community of children that I'm writing about, that I do think derive from really particular circumstance about almost the infrastructural reality of that street and, and that neighborhood at that time. But then again, there are things that open into universalities, about childhood, about parents, about life in urban environments, especially racially mixed ones, class, diverse ones. And so it's both in a way that's really intricate and, and energized the project in many ways
0: to say, I think everyone understands, but also I've got to say this was really weird. Hmm. You just brought up a lot of themes that I want to circle back to, but let's, let's come back to crime. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a fascinating question that's threaded throughout the book. And I think that at one point your narrator even acknowledges this. So the, the, the book is called Brooklyn Crime Novel, but that's a little bit of a red herring. Uh-huh. It's, it's not a, um, a police procedural, it's not a murder no. mystery. A ton of minor crimes are threaded throughout and are important in the lives of, of the young people. There are, there are more major things that happen that we won't get into now because folks should encounter them for themselves. But the, the, the version of crime that seems most I don't know, meaningful to this day that maybe reverber- reverberates the most in people's lives is something that you call the dance. Yeah. W- what do you mean by that? Well,
1: we had a kind of exchange. You know, uh, so I'll back up and say, when I first left Brooklyn and I would go out into other worlds, I went to college in Vermont, then I moved to California. I would visit people in other cities. I was, I was into wandering, I wanted to be anywhere but New York. But when I would talk about New York City, a kind of common question was, have you ever been mugged? And I mean, there were, I had shorthand, I had ways of dealing with it if I wasn't interested in the question. But if I was interested in the question, if I wanted to stop and answer it, it was really hard to answer. Because the answer was either never, and I mean never in the sense that like, what people mean when they say mugging is sort of like what happens to Batman's parents. A guy with a handkerchief on his face Puts, puts a gun up and, you know, you, you step into an alley and he says, your money or your life. Well, that hadn't happened to me. I, I hadn't had that kind of standard mugging. But if, on the other hand, it meant like someone taking stuff from you on the street of New York City, it had happened more times than I could count. And it was a kind of ritual transaction that fascinated me because it was precisely nameless. It was, it, it floated, and it's, it's the fact that we weren't supposed to give it a name amongst ourselves, to our parents, you wouldn't report it as a crime. It was this inarticulate
0: but expressive maneuver. Can you just dis- describe how it might go? Well, I mean, I could
1: do you right
0: now. Yeah, um, Yeah. as long as it can be on the microphone so folks can hear it on the future radio broadcast. (laughs) What you you looking at? So I'm you. Uh, uh, Nothing.
1: Nothing. No, man. What you looking at? What's the problem? What's your problem? You don't like me?
0: Uh, No, I'm just trying to go to the store. I feel like I'm not doing the, the play acting right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, the worst case scenario is you actually take my money because I'm not acting correctly Yeah, no, you,
1: there's no, there's no, there's no correct way to act. It was a kind of, it was a kind we of ex- tried. expressive encounter that involved uh, familiarity, guilt, often even a kind of fondness, recognition, and then the surrender of something. Your bus pass your baseball glove, most often a dollar or some pocket change, was and it, but it was always covered in a kind of a, um, we know we're just joking. We know we just, you know, this is, you, you know I wouldn't, I, you know I like you. You know, you know you didn't do anything wrong. You know you like me. We were
0: just fooling around. Thanks for the money. Where was, what was there an implied threat of violence. Of course. Of course. And sometimes
1: there was, uh, there was a, a rough housing kind of violence to it. Often a headlock was very typical. You know you like me. Yeah, we like each other.
0: We're friends. You write that it, 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 was, uh, it was a usual enough occurrence that you, uh, it wasn't uncommon for kids to put the money they cared about, mm. say, in their socks. Oh, and yeah, to this have was- this a was some quarters a, or a dollar bill in the pocket because that is that's the mugging money. I didn't make up the term mugging money. And and in my questionnaire,
1: I I asked about whether people had ever been in the habit, the practice. And again, people would, would would write into my questionnaire as if I was like being you know foolish. Like, of course. Of course you kept fifty cents in your pockets to hand over and a dollar in your sock to spend on what you had. You know, hope to hope to spend it on um, the things you weren't going to shoplift, because um. <laughs> you were always both. Remember, victim and criminal. That's the big takeaway.
0: You grew up, and and so did I, at a time when the word trauma was not used nearly as much as it is now. No. and and we could spend an hour talking about that. Yes, and, and there there are probably benefits and drawbacks to. The 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 frequency that it's at uh, which it's it's tossed around now, but yeah. but it does get. But it's it's not at all, it's not a word that you associate at all in the writing of this book with what you experience. And I yeah. and it, it did make me wonder if say the the bodily experience, if if, if the fear associated with that, even if it was um it, there was never explicit or rarely explicit violence, yeah. and even if it was couched in a jokey way if the fear of that has lingered?
1: Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think it, it is, there's fear at the core, but much of what I'm interested in in this book is, and it relates to the idea of trauma, but I don't think the language of trauma was useful to me. It's the management of anxiety or fear or guilt, often combinations of those things, through attitude, performance stylistics, uh, paraphrase, and ritual. In a way, we all participated in creating a theater of the hard-boiled, you know, we're from Brooklyn, we do this kind of thing. This is what it is to be from the streets. This is what it is to be street savvy, to have um, street cred, it's not that different in a way from the way the essence of the hard-boiled style conceals trauma to begin with. You know, the hard-boiled detective, when he's invented in the post in the uh, between the two world wars, he wears a trench coat because he's a he's a war veteran. It's a reference to trench warfare. But that stylistic, we don't think of that when we see Humphrey Bogart with his, you know, kind of hard exterior and broken heart underneath. We get what it looks like and how it feels. We're attracted to it. It seems useful. Adopting the hard-boiled manner is very very alluring. But we don't think about it as he's a wounded war veteran. He's recovering from shell shock or not recovering from it because he can't. So this idea of the management of something through a collective ritual stylistic Hmm. uh, was very important
0: to me. You write, or your narrator writes, while the DIY renovations are going on inside the houses, the DIY reparations are transpiring on the sidewalks out front. Um, we haven't talked about the, 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 your experience of the, the racial component yeah. of what you call the dance. What was it?
1: Well, I mean, it took a lot of forms, but the most traditional thing was that the white kids were surrendering money to the non-white kids. And the white parents were silently consenting to know and not know that this was going on. That's where I felt the, the aspect of reparations came in. Because it was a kind of like, they don't have what you have. Tolerate this. Don't talk about it. Everyone was managing in a gentrifying space, in a post-civil rights triumphant atmosphere where everything was supposed to be now very kumbaya and very good and very organized and fine. We're all going to get along. This was the unspeakable wrongness that persisted and was being managed, was that the civil rights era hadn't transformed everything, that disparities and injustices were everywhere, but were not being named. And so the movement of tiny bits of property, shame, you know, uh, dignity from one place to the other was a kind of substitutive response. And, and guilt was everywhere. What do you mean when you say that? I mean, you, did, you couldn't have, I, it was kind of a silly joke for me to try to get you to play act a uh, dance with me because you couldn't have occupied the, the role because you don't feel fundamentally in torment about me, that you are in bad faith towards me. But in, in the dance as I understood it and accepted it, now I could never have enunciated any of these things when I was a kid, there was an ingredient which was, you know that when I say, what are you looking at or why do you look at me that way, What's implied is you've already done something wrong by, by, by coexisting with me and meeting my eye.
0: And, and being part of the displacement of people of who course, look like absolutely. me. Of course,
1: absolutely. Now, nobody was enunciating this, but I do believe that actually there was almost a, an element in the life of the children in that neighborhood at that time that we were all sort of political scientists, but without any language for it. We were enacting and negotiating Injury and injustice that could not be translated into language
0: hmm.
1: with our bodies in space.
0: One of the mysteries to me as I was reading the book is what you think the parents actually knew about what was going on, what they knew but pretended not to yeah. know, and, and what they were truly ignorant of. I mean, maybe it's impossible to, to, yeah, I to mean, sort it, that out, it's, but, it, but how, how do you think about what parents were thinking at that time? <laughs> Well, I think it varied enormously. And I
1: think, you know, I tried to give some indications in this book, but I was actually a lot less interested in the parents. You know, the first time I wrote about growing up in the neighborhood, in, in The Fortress of Solitude, I was in my 30s. The, the world was 20 years younger. Everyone was closer to these experiences. And I was closer to my own childhood. But weirdly, I took the position of the parents a lot identified with the parents a lot in that book. I was really in love with them and their worlds, their, their yearning, their wish to make this place that they'd come to make sense and to be good neighbors if they could be. In, you know, 20 years later, writing about it again in my 50s, I was like, screw them. Those dumb boomers, they messed it up. Uh, I'm just going to write about the kids and what they experienced Without, without giving so much lip service to the in, the good intentions, hmm. or misunderstandings, the understand the you know the the uh, the comprehensible confusions of the parents, I I made the parents in this book more like the parents in like a Peanuts cartoon. Wah wah wah! They're just. They're like the wall of incomprehension.
0: Except I think that m- maybe there are wor- th- those in peanuts cartoons, they are, they, they might as well not be there. Yeah. But your narr- narrator writes this, says this uh, about parents. The institution of parenting is itself in a mixed state, one of collabs, <laughs> abdication, reinvention. The parents <laughs> might identify with you more than you identify with yourself. Who can say? Was yeah. that as destabilizing as it sounds? Well, you know, I mean,
1: there are a lot of amazing memoirs now written about the the stratum of parenting, you know the kind of the hippie commune living parents of the seventies. I had a great example in in my space, and i l i my father's still alive and I adore him, but he is absolutely exemplifies this sort of um you know. The self-absorption and and also, you know, incredibly idealistic, un, absolutely unbroken idealism about his path in the world. There's no ruefulness in that generation. They did these amazing things, or 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 they're still about to do them. You know, it might it might still happen. Hmm. Um, I uh, identified with him a lot as a child, and that was my way of. Um, trying to understand them. But that's also because they were easy to identify because they were extending their, their childishness in many, many ways. Huh. And so we were, uh, you know, in the same space. The, the cultural historical moment had made them, you know, it was the age of Aquarius. And the Aquarian is kind of always
0: um, ready to become something. That's Jonathan Lethem in conversation at the Newmark Theatre for the 2023 Portland Book Festival. We'll have a lot more after a short break. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. If you are just tuning in, we're spending the hour today with the novelist Jonathan Lethem we talked in front of an audience at the Newmark Theatre for the 2023 Portland Book Festival. Lethem's latest book is called Brooklyn Crime Novel. It's all about life on Brooklyn's Dean Street in the 1970s. That's where and when Lethem actually grew up. Lethem writes that if you sorted boyhood there into different periods, the first would be the false oasis. I asked him what that phrase means.
1: There's this
0: period when the children...
1: Collectively, do identify with the what, in a sense, is like the memo they're handed, and this has to do with r- the the extremely specific historical conditions of the civil rights era has just um, has just happened, and a lot of people are 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 wanting to claim victory, and you know in this in the legacy of um, an urban space like the one in Brooklyn that I, that I inhabited, uh, th- white people are coming back from the suburbs. They're like, we're gonna give the cities a chance. Let's all live together. It's a kind of Jane Jacobs idealization, which is a very you know, very appealing one, right? Make community, live close with people. And it's, its expression took the form of diving in and there were lots of results all kinds of experiences and confusions, and now we go back and we put the name, which is a very general word that we, we use as if it's unbelievably specific, gentrification on all of this. Well, under that name lies a lot of different kinds of reality. You know, yes, there's predatory r- real estate. That's the easy thing. But there's also so much I- idealism, so many artists, so many people yearning to find a way to be in community. And the, you know, if it was only um, capitalism, if it was only cynically uh, motivated, that would be easy to denounce. Instead, it's this crazy confabulation of so many different kinds of desire and, and um, you know, attempts to, to create something. But so the memo that was given to the children was, we just took care of this. You guys are, you're the luckiest kids in the world because we, you know, I think I have a, a joke in the book with, with its very, you kind know, of caustic, hard-boiled voice. Uh, we smoked some reefer and listened to some jazz records and we marched and now you guys get the world. <laughs> it's all going to be great because you're all together. And we were like any children, we were totally excited by the idealization that we were offered
0: initially. So that's the false oasis. Hmm. Um, At one point, a character imagines going back to some parts of the neighborhood he spent time in as as a child, you write, what's he going to say? I didn't used to be white. (laughs) Uh, um, Can you help help me understand that? I mean, what is he trying to communicate? The sense is he's never gonna say those words because they're absurd. But what's behind them? What, what would they communicate about his experience of race in his adolescence? Yeah. Well, you know, so
1: behind this very idealistic memo, there's another, a very, very pernicious, painful memo, very hard to admit you've been given, which is, you have a ticket out of here. And once you hear that, and you receive it into your body, even if you don't want to acknowledge it because it's, it seems evil, because it's distinguishing your ticket from the ticketlessness of someone who lives by your side. You know, you're viable. Wait it out. Self-invent. Get into a good college.
0: Or go to a go to a private school even when you're in middle school or or high school, or go to a fancier school. If you can convince your
1: parents to to send you to a different school, then all you have to do is get from the subway to your house. To abandon the scene of this idealization, which is so painful to do, and yet so inviting. If you can't solve the problem of the dance, that you're close and in torment with your collective. Because we all, kids we kids were a collective for, for a time. So this joke, what am I going to say, I didn't used to be white, is the recognition that one has separated oneself and begun to construct a, a, a new identification, a new set of, you know. And, and, it isn't only, you know, it's, uh, this may be odd to say, but in a space like that, it isn't only the black or brown kids who learn to code switch. So that character who's thinking, I didn't used to be white, what am I gonna say, I didn't used to be white, is, is thinking, is it okay if I code switch back into the collective? If I become a street kid again, but what am, am I playing at something? And suddenly it all looks false. Their entire predicate for existing looks very, very false.
0: Do you remember when you first started hearing the word gentrification?
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought about this a lot. So, I mean, so you mentioned at the beginning, Borham Hill, the neighborhood was an invention, which became a fascination to me. It was made, it was made up out of um, a portion of blocks that, had otherwise been claimed by downtown Brooklyn or North Gowanus. And it was made up by an old woman named Helen Buckler who lived about five houses away from me. And she invented the term um, by finding the name Borum on an old map. It was like a farmland, Henry Borum or Simon Borum, a couple of brothers had owned some farmland in that area. And she invented it in 1964. And I was born in 1964. The word gentrification was coined by a sociologist named Ruth Glass in London in 1964. So I felt, okay, this is, this is telling me something. <laughs> I've been traveling with these terms, Boreham Hill on one side and gentrification on the other since my birth. Um, but it's now so common, so recognizable. I can th- throw it out here knowing that everyone's going to have a feeling about it and maybe even want to contest like, oh, yeah, you say it. It's not simple. I think it's simple. It's when it, it's when X happens, right? People really feel they know this term, but it was not. You know, I researched this because I wanted to um, reclaim my own intuitions. There were other things that that were being named, but until the mid '80s, this term wasn't familiar at all. Ruth Glass had coined it in in London. She was a sociologist. She was describing a a that had happened in a a part of London, but she was an academic, and it was an academic term that took a very long time to filter into common usage or into journalism. You can't find any reference to gentrification in the New York Times until the um, mid-1980s, and then it's very tentative. Hmm. It's always explained when it's used. It doesn't appear in the New Yorker until uh, 1989. And then it rapidly, because of the need to start talking about this painful collective experience, it becomes a a very familiar and famous word very quickly after that. But so when my parents were talking about it in the early 80s, they were actually outliers. And it was because our neighborhood was like the laboratory of gentrification. And they were leftists, they were radicals, and so they were finding this term when they needed it to to start to reverse what had otherwise been described positively. As I say, and kind of like, um, mostly, uh, you know, these terms are gonna seem incredible, people would talk about being urban pioneers. Well, now that doesn't sound really very nice anymore.
0: But but Uh, just to say people used it um, in a positive way about what they were doing. Well,
1: again, you know, if you have Robert Moses, who's trying to bulldoze your neighborhood, to build an expressway, and on the other side, you have Jane Jacobs, you feel like you're on the good side. No, we're going to revitalize it. That was the term. It was renewal, renewal, renaissance, revitalization, and it was an assertive, proud
0: movement. One of the other... uh dicey phrases that, that you introduced me to uh, in the book is Cinderella Project. Yeah, well, this was really particular. So there, the Brooklyn
1: Union Gas Corporation got involved in sponsoring the restoration of certain of these row houses, the brownstones. And they would give you a grant under something called the C- Cinderella, um, uh, I don't know what it was called, Cinderella Imperative or something. And, and then you would have a Cinderella house. Well, what does that make the other ones, ugly stepsisters? Does it mean it's gonna revert at midnight? It's very odd, but of course, the reason they would do this was that it was also a craze for gas fittings, uh, which connected to, also to this Victorian fantasy. And there was a lot of translating, you know, this is something that's, um, it, it seems incongruous now, but the, the hippies, who in one sense were, you know, they were hippies, I'm, I'm kind of one myself, not not um not into conventional uh forms of prestige but they were they had this victorian fantasy they liked to dress up in costumes and put gas chandeliers in their houses and restore the the marble fireplaces so it was a kind of a um, it was a, it was a, an imposture that was very charming on one level but then again it was also if you look at it through the lens of um how do people establish a provenance that may not be telling the whole story? It was a way of reclaiming the white background of these row houses. Oh, look, they're Victorians. We're restoring them. We're, gonna, we're not gonna modernize them. We're gonna clean up the beautiful old clawfoot bathtubs and the marble fireplaces and we're gonna put gas chandeliers in because they used to be Victorian houses and we're gonna make them into that again. Well, what that does is it creates a, a, a myth of origins, as if they really ought to have always belonged to the people that they now belong to, because they were built for them. It, it completely elides everything that happened between <laughs> the building
0: of the neighborhood and decades of, of Mohawk iron workers and living everybody there or, or else who, everyone else who or, ever lived there. Yeah. Um, that does get to something that was fascinating. It was in, you wrote about it in a New Yorker article recently, and it's suffused in the novel. It's the, uh, the emphasis on the incredible hundreds, thousands of hours of work that these brownstoners, as they call themselves, yeah. put in, either paid for or <laughs> often did themselves, sanding and painting and scraping and putting in yeah. new brickwork. The, the but the implicit at least maybe explicit argument is that this work I- ennobled the process and and is a kind of excuse for what followed. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I I'm curious what what you it see was in a, the emphasis in the work that they put in. Of course,
1: it was a kind of sweat equity and also when you know, if you're going to call yourself a pioneer or a settler, you're going to exhibit this devotional, you know, I'm going to process this space into, you know, um it it was like kind of um making something into
0: a garden with your own hands. You should have seen this land when I arrived, and now right. it's fertile. Right. Well, what do you make of that argument? How do you reckon with it?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything to reckon with. I just wanted to record the extraordinary, intricate mindset that explains the space that I, that I can still see as if it's yesterday. And that seems so exotic now. But the reason it's meaningful to, to talk about it is not that I'm going to convince someone in 1968 not to buy a building in what was formerly Gowanus, because that doesn't make any sense. And anyway, as so many of you may be just thinking, they were just trying to find a place to live. But it's just to, to notice that right now, the same kind of uh, self-ratifying fantasies accompany all kinds of marvelously good intentions by marvelously, uh, you know, approachable, likable people who may in fact be ourselves Mm -hmm. and could also be participating in similar kinds of fantasies that would look as peculiar, to put a neutral word on it, if, if we had the, benefit of
0: time. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that um, I experienced reading the book is um, that I lived very close to the neighborhood here talking about 20 or 25 years ago. I was in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, which is blocks away from what sure. we're talking about um, for a number of years. And I, I walked all the streets that you wrote about in this new book. I, I had many happy times in a, a bar, the Brooklyn Inn that you write about, um, this was about 30 years after your parents' generation. I was just a, a later arriving white person. Um, the only reason I bring this up is that to, to, sh- to acknowledge that gentrification, to, to, to go back to this sort of all-encompassing, half-helpful word, that it, it, it doesn't stop. It's not static. No. It spreads. It continues. It, it metastasizes. It changes. It changes. Um, and it and and I and many people are implicated in it in complicated ways. Well, but also it's you, of course you're implicated in it. I mean,
1: but that's also to say maybe the frame is wrong, you know. And this is one of the things that I came to see in my during my childhood when the word gentrification when the word revitalization revitalization turned into maybe we have a new name for it and it's not such a happy name, gentrification. The, the parents, the adults in my neighborhood, kind of divided up into two teams. There was like the pro and con. And at first that seemed very um, legible to me. Like, okay, I'm I'm on the anti-gentrification team. Well, needless to say, we can see the double bind that it's very difficult to be part of the people making a neighborhood more white and be effectively against the increases in you know, it becoming fashionable and, and, and expensive and more, more policed that always accompany this, right? But it also started to seem to me that the, the scale was wrong. That you can want to be, let's say, a, a really good uh, landlord and rent an apartment for below market value, which in fact is what my father always did. He always found some kind of, you know, ceramicist who was working as a waitress and he would, he would rent the basement apartment at a bargain. So he wasn't literally expanding the, the you know, raising the, the costs. But you can't be an anti-gentrificationist in an area that's like eight or twelve or 20 square blocks because it's it's not understanding that the problems are so much larger they're structural the issues that you're contending with are about our society they're about capitalism it doesn't actually work to either be in favor or opposed to a good coffee shop that's not pol- that's not politics really it's just it's just attitude <laughs> and so i began to think oh you know this is an insufficient framework we have to I mean, you, you didn't move there because you either, you know, wanted to participate or wanted to stem the tide of something. You moved there because it was, it was
0: where you wanted to live at that time. It was time. affordable and it was, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, a, a complicated word in and of itself. Yeah. Um, your narrator says at the beginning and at the end that he wants to avoid nostalgia. Uh, What is nostalgia? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, so, I mean, this gets to my having the sensibility I have. I, you know, one of the things I noticed about myself was that I spent my life running away from Brooklyn and then I'd move into spaces that were, that reproduced it. Or I'd be attracted to spaces that reproduced it in all kinds of ways. How conscious of you were that at the the time? It took a while for me to acknowledge it. And, you know, and to see it, it still happens to me, you know, uh, half accidentally. I, in, in California, I've, I recently sort of fell in love with a town called Landers on the edge of the Joshua Tree Desert, and I was like, oh crap, it's the desert. There's n- almost nobody lives here, and there are just these weird twisted trees and rocks, but it's gentrifying, isn't it? I did it again. Like this, this feels right to me in a weird way. The wrongness feels right to me. The sense of something transforming. And that doesn't have to, obviously, it doesn't have to do with race or displacement because there's enough room for anyone who wants to come. But with the idea of it becoming, you know, you use the word cool, the idea of it changing into something else and there being layers of different forces in contention under the skin of the reality. And this is my space, you know, I think I've done it as a, as, a, as a writer as well. I think I moved into science fiction just in time for the gentrification. And the, the feeling I have for my own past, well, you know, many people have this, is that it's delicious. I mean, you know, when I wrote The Fortress of Solitude, the paradox of that book is it would seem to, you use the word trauma, it would seem to be a catalog of childhood traumas, but the latter part of the book is the thing everyone finds so excruciating is when the character leaves and everyone's like, can't he go back there and be mugged some more? <laughs> it was so nice back then. And I agree kind of, you know, he he's, turns into a, a total pill when he abandons that space. And I pine for that. The problem of Boreham Hill or Gowanus in 1977. I want to dream my way back there. And in The Fortress of Solitude, I did it very nostalgically. And I don't mean to criticize that book. I am very proud of that book. But it's suffused with this golden light, this, the, all the music. I'm constantly re-arousing this sensory fascination with the way the buildings and the trees looked and the way the music sounded and the way we all live together in such an aggressive, disastrous you know, utopia. And then it was like a lost world for me. But in this book, I wanted to make it more stark. And I wanted the the politics and the confusion to be raw and on the surface. So I had to strip away all of the golden light coming through the trees. I, I try not to mention the music that's playing. It's a book of stark actualities. What were the structures? What were the patterns of behavior? I don't even give the characters very much intimate detail. They're actually kind of like figures in a hieroglyphic that I'm studying.
0: They don't have names either. Yeah. Um, at one point, you're right. This inquiry isn't finally about what nobody knows or what everybody knows. It's about what a small number of people remember Even if they avert their eyes when passing on the sidewalk, it is about the knowledge that's locked up inside their bodies and how it wishes and doesn't wish to come out. What were some of the things for you that you didn't want to come out? Well, you know, the most important work you have to do (laughs) on this
1: earth, and I actually, I'm going to sound really vainglorious, but I feel like this book, Brooklyn Crime Novel, was the most important work I came to earth to do. But it's, by definition, it's gonna, um, I mean, well, on the simplest level, it's gonna exhaust you, it's going to implicate you, and it's going to um, um, leave you seeing yourself as a a, 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 a part of history. It's to acknowledge where we, where we come from, and not individuate, not take it personally, not self-aggrandize, but to say, I just happened to be born into this world and I'm just gonna try to account as well as I can for the, the things I've seen and the places I've been. But it's, it's, it's in some sense, it's very demeaning to the vanities of a, of a person who grew up in a, both in a civilization, America, that, that glamorizes self-invention and self-actualization, and then also in a bohemian subculture of the arts that doubles down and says, oh, become whatever you want to become and make beautiful things. I didn't have that work to do
0: here. So I, um, I'm fascinated by that answer because I, I thought you might have said what was hardest to write about was this aspect of very complicated racial politics and my place in it. But if I understood you correctly just now, what you said was that the most challenging aspect of this was to see yourself as a, a, an insignificant player on Absolutely. the world stage. I, I saw this book as the mission was to leave myself out. But isn't, as that, relentlessly isn't that impossible?
1: As I, of course it's impossible. And, and it's it's impossible in a way that becomes fascinating and in a way it becomes part of the subject becomes, of the book.
0: It becomes very self-consciously yeah. a, a part of the mechanism of the book I as think you go. The
1: book the book ended up take, taking this impossibility as one of its subjects because to do the work I needed to do, I needed to put myself out of the scene and out of the picture and not care about myself and not, not advertise my own sensitivities. For me, this goes back to my life as a reader. It has, it, it, it's the precursor to my ambition to write. It's, I read books to become other than who I was. I, de- I de- desired this more than anything in the world, not because I disliked myself, but because the appetite to be translated into the other was ravenous. I couldn't get enough of that. And I sought it in all kinds of different forms and versions. I wanted to time travel, and I wanted to become an alien, and I wanted to become a woman, and I wanted to become anything that, I, that a novel could make me become. And yet, one is helplessly, um, the book also is endlessly admitting, I'm stuck here. I'm this white guy walking down the street. I, you know, but to identify with what doesn't identify with you, there is the deepest remorseful sensation
0: possible. Jonathan Lethem, thanks very much. Thank you. That was Jonathan Lethem in conversation at the Newmark Theater for the 2023 Portland Book Festival. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. There's also our nightly radio rebroadcast at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford.